I remember asking myself the question really poignantly as I looked myself in the mirror at the end of the season, are the players performing on field because of the work we do or in spite of the work we do? And I didn't like the answer to that question. I very rarely saw them actually behaving with this perfect technical model that we had beaten the path towards in that traditional approach, in that rote repetition over and over and over again. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is extremely unique, and in unique in the sense of normally when I have a guest on, we would go back on some discussion points. But Sean Mishka, who appears in this episode of the podcast, is insistent that in his episode, he didn't want to know what we were going to talk about. And this is reflective of how he views movement problems and coaching agility, which is the basis of the conversation today. So no place for closed drills, or very few, very few places for closed drills, and all about how we learn to interact and react to the environment that we're in. So this episode is all about constraints-based learning, the ecological dynamics approach, and basically teaching and ensuring that we get transfer from the drills that we go through in practice, in training, to enhance agility on game day. So it's a superb episode, and Sean is such a good guy, incredibly open, and anyone that is interested in this area, I would encourage them to follow Sean's work, and also reach out to him should you have any further questions. But really excited to get this episode out there, because I'm sure you'll love it. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Play. Play is the leader in high-performance athletic flooring and strength equipment globally. So with offices in the US, Australia and the UK, Play provides an end-to-end experience by collaborating with organisations through their own proprietary formula to create world-class environments for coaches and athletes. Play's Achieve 18mm Rubber and Attack Turf have been at the cornerstone of elite training facilities for now over a decade, with the addition of the new Icon X rack range. Play are once again set to elevate the industry. On the 23rd of April 2022, Play will be hosting their first UK lab of the year in collaboration with Loughborough University. Play will be joined by some exceptional speakers from elite sport, industry and academia with a huge breadth of knowledge and experience. Listeners and supporters of Pace Performance Podcast are able to obtain an exclusive 20% discount using the code SPORTSMITH20 when registering at playacademy.com forward slash play hyphen labs hyphen Loughborough. And this episode is also sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. 
If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website, hawkingdynamics.com, to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. And this episode of the podcast is also sponsored by iMeasureU. iMeasureU is used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimise return to play for running based sports. iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer life battery to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicom, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, the US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website iMeasureU.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with Sean. Sean Mishka, welcome to the Pace Performance Podcast, finally. Finally, finally. And I think you're going to test me and I'm going to test you as we've already figured out uh, with a little bit of problem solving and a little bit of adaptability. But uh, Rob, I'm I'm obviously very, very grateful to be here. Um, I'm very honored to be here. And I'm very excited, very, very invigorated based on the, the conversation that we just had off the air for about 15 minutes or so. Absolutely. Just to give people who are listening a bit of an insight, normally what I would do is have a little bit of back and forth with the guest who's coming on in the future. We would maybe bat a few ideas around, or I would just send what I thought, and they normally 95% of the time say, yes, that's fine. With Sean, going along with how he thinks and what he does day-to-day was don't send me anything. So I'm really excited. I've got a list. Sean has nothing. So uh, I think it'll be really fun. Really, really excited to have you on. It's uh, it's a pleasure to, to, to have you and thank you for giving up your time. But anyone that doesn't know who you are, Sean, would you mind just giving us a bit of a background on you and then finishing up with what you're doing now? Yeah, for those of out there that are probably hearing me for the first time or maybe hearing me for the first time, I'm known as the Movement Miyagi on Twitter. Uh, That wasn't a name that I gave myself. That wasn't a moniker that I gave myself. It was a moniker that some of the players, the National Football League players that I partner with gave me. So before I get the the egotistical finger pointed at me, uh, it wasn't something I gave or offered for myself, but I've just taken it and ran with it from a brand standpoint now. Um, So if you are searching for some of the things that I typically go on rants about, you can find me at the Movement Miyagi uh, on Twitter. But I operate as a movement skill acquisition coach for National Football League players. I've done that now for 15 seasons. I've partnered with uh, now 108 National Football League players. So I'm very, very blessed and grateful to obviously be in that role over these last decade and a half. Um, I view movement and movement skill as my main objective. I believe that sport is a problem-solving activity where our movements are just used to produce the necessary solutions, as Mel Siff and Yuri Koshansky would have said back in the old Bible super training, right? So sport as a problem-solving activity. And I believe that movement skill is that problem-solving activity, that 
we can impact and influence the way that athletes are interacting with their environments in a much different way if we view movement and movement skill in this fashion. So you're probably going to see or hear that threaded throughout as listeners. Hopefully we'll be able to get into why I view movement skill in this fashion in a little different way where things like abundance of strategies, things like adaptability. You're going to hear me talk about words like attunement or dexterity, words that you might not have heard before or maybe have heard and just don't exactly understand how they may apply and may influence your craft. These are things that have shaped what I refer to as my form of life, the way that I view movement behavior, the way that I view sport behavior and performance. And so I've, like I said, I've been partnering with National Football League players for quite some time. Obviously, um, I'm very American football oriented, but I do also, uh, I have co-founded and operate as the co-director of education for a movement skill education company, which is titled Emergence, which uh, we're probably going to get into a little bit as well as to what my role is there and how we view movement behavior and really what we're trying to do to shape the lens on all behavior in sport across levels. Um, you know, so there, it's not just that I exist within an American football realm or world. If you follow me on Twitter, you hear me going on rants and raves about mixed martial arts and the UFC and some of the things that we can take and learn from them. There are things that I get into with students at Emergence, which are existing across sports. So I will try to use as many examples uh, to illustrate my points or maybe to hit home on some of my beliefs from my paradigm that maybe will match more people's experience. You know, people who are international that might not be uh, following American football very closely, people within America who don't really care for my sport, like my good friend, Stu McMillan, who I know that you know, um, that people will see he and I going back and forth with. So I will try to use as many examples as we can to illustrate these points that don't exist within American football, but that's where I live. That's where I breathe. And that's what I love. Sounds good. So you are employed directly with players or you do also do consultancy with, with teams as well. I do some consultations with teams. Uh, usually it's on very short term or very acute type of situations where um, I will present to staffs. I will come in for a one, two or three days and maybe analyze their practice activities, get into how it is that I feel as though they can make them more alive. So that's a term that you're probably going to hear me drop a few times, this idea of alive problems being solved within environments. But mostly I work directly with the players. So I become a personal performance advisor slash movement skill acquisition coach for players that they and I lock arms with one another to attempt to polish and sharpen their craft, specifically how they behave on a field. Obviously, I still attack things like uh, general physical qualities and general physical preparedness. So I'm still doing weight room stuff. Obviously, way back in the day, I was mostly a strength and conditioning professional and then morphed into this role uh, where I felt as though there was a major void. There was a major gap that was existing between what we were doing within strength and conditioning or athletic performance preparation. And then when we would hand them off to the coaches, there was this huge gap in how that skill or how those 
techniques and physical qualities maybe were or were not transferring to the actual field. So I elected to sort of exist within that gap to attack things in a more uh, representative fashion, particularly with the athletes that I'm, I'm locking arms with, to really attack the gaps within their skill set, particularly from a movement standpoint. So you may have just answered the question that, that was going to come next. The job title that you've given yourself or the, what, you're, what you're known as, when we have people on the podcast, as you well know, it's strength and conditioning coach, physical performance coach, you know, all the, and everything in between, like people make stuff up and which is fine. But why, why have you, why have you decided to go down that route to be known as that in particular and really niche down in that area? Yeah. So that gap was getting bigger and bigger and bigger, Rob. And what I was finding is that the position coaches in the national football league are very intelligent when it comes to X's and O's tactics, strategies, principles of play. But really, and if you follow me on Twitter, which obviously you do, and, and we're right in the midst of NFL training camp, so you see me going on my soapbox over and over and over again about the horse shit stuff that's being done across the National Football League in indie drills, right? There's this individual period where position coaches are taking 10, 15, 20 minutes to work with players each and every day, and they're all decontextualized, isolated drills, where there's rote repetition, which is being prioritized. And it starts to show us the limitations in how they view movement behavior. But what I was finding is that gap was getting bigger and bigger because strength and conditioning professionals were overly prioritizing the same thing within their learning environments, that they weren't really learning environments, that they were attacking physical preparedness, which is usually what they view themselves to be in charge of, right? But even when they were addressing speed or change of direction qualities, it was in highly irrelevant fashions to the way that it would be expressed or displayed on a football field. And so I felt that gap was getting bigger and the player was kind of lost in the middle of this saying, how do I actually put those physical qualities to use in highly practically relevant ways to functionally solve problems in my world. Because for the players, Rob, you and I both know, like that's what they care about. They're there to become better football players. So everything that we would do on either end should support and supplement their craft in that way. How they were solving problems, the abundance that they would maybe have, the diversity within strategies, their decision-making, their perceptions, their actions, all being coupled and intertwined in a way that allows them to really connect to their environment and become more functional problem solvers, more dexterous movers. And so that gap and the reason why I decided to coin this idea of a movement skill acquisition coach it wasn't so much only about the movements, right? People hear movement Miyagi or they hear movement skill acquisition and they think that what I'm doing is chasing perfect execution of motor patterns, right? Motor system degrees of freedom. That's what they view coordination of movement to be. I do not. I view it as movement skill in relation to one's environment that is constantly changing, that has emergent and decaying opportunities. And I want to assist the player in perceiving and selecting and acting upon those opportunities in their own unique and authentic fashion. 
And so the position coaches really weren't doing that because they were really mostly focusing on X's and O's and those that maybe were focused on the craft really didn't know how to assist or facilitate that movement skill. The strength and conditioning individuals, you know, obviously they're very, very well-intentioned. Many people who are close friends of mine, they just don't view movement skill in this fashion. And so things like speed and acceleration and power and explosiveness wasn't really being expressed on, on the field. That's why I've been such a, you know, person who's knocking on the door for the national football league to change and adjust its talent identification procedures, particularly with the NFL combine, you know, back in what 2013 or 14 already. Now we're talking eight, nine years ago, I was already sort of on my soapbox there with the combine saying like the stuff you guys are looking at isn't actually overly relevant when it comes to how they're going to behave on a football field on an NFL Sunday. And that gave the strength and conditioning professionals sort of this, like, I, I tried to shake them a bit and say, you know, like, listen, I understand that there will be times and places to assist people in gaining more. And when I say gaining more, I mean, strength, speed, change of direction, addressing things from an injury reduction standpoint, mobility, so on and so forth. But if it's not actually finding its way out onto a football field in the competitive environment, at some point when we move up those levels of mastery, like we have to address some other things. Bear with me here. I have a, I have a theory because the, the S side of a strength and conditioning coach is 90% of education when it comes to a undergraduate or a, a master's level qualifications, education. So we are heavily educated in that area. So that translates into a, a working environment. My theory, and this is definitely just something that I've looked at myself and then look at other people and say, I think we're similar in this, that we like things. And this is, this maybe come back to the pen, the, my favorite pen <laughs> that I couldn't find that we, I had to have before I hit record here today. We like things in a box. We like things to be measured. We like things to be, you know, put on a spreadsheet and it goes to a coach, like we've done this. We're comfortable in that area. We're not comfortable when things get, com not complex, but when things get a little bit messy. And there's people like yourself, there's people, previous people I could, who could definitely reel off who'd be on the podcast, who live in the messy and thrive in that area. But I think the majority, me included, like the package like things to be in a row like the drill everyone's doing the same it, you know it looks the same we've got this aim and we're, we're working towards that aim do you think would you agree do you think i'm i'm being too simplistic do you think i'm trying to put myself onto onto others and, and create the theory that i have no i, th I think you're 100 percent on point here rob you know i think back to when I first started to discuss an ecological dynamics framework and the use of it, the adoption of it, uh, in my world and in my realm, I presented at a strength and conditioning, a major national strength and conditioning um, conference here in the States. And this would have been back in, I think, 14, 2014, when I was really starting to grasp on to maybe how this constraints-led approach and viewing skill in this performer environment relationship and with this problem-solver-oriented paradigm, I started to talk to more strength and conditioning professionals. And I remember being at this respective event 
And there was probably three to 400 people in the room. And I asked them how many people had view, like would view skill in this way, in this truly emergent fashion where the performer interacts with an environment and there's this mutual reciprocal exchange where the movement skill itself is being expressed based on how it fits the needs of the problem. And I dropped ideas from Nikolai Bernstein to JJ Gibson to Bruce Lee, right? And when I asked the question, there were three people that would raise their hand saying, yeah, I do view skill in that way, as opposed to maybe the rote repetition, perfect technical model of movement, movement being more decontextualized or isolated. Like there were these two camps, if you will. And the only three people in this three to 400, you know, room um, raised their hand and they all happened to be three people who I talked to the night before, right? And so like, I think what we find is that we just have done what we've always done, or we do what we've always done. We address it in ways that we've always addressed it. So we don't know what we don't know at times, or we're not willing to look at it through a slightly different lens. Even though when we think about some of the things that we've already discussed up to this point, as to when and where and how movement skill actually emerges in competitive sport, we know that it is much more about adaptability, that this world will be messy, that no two problems are ever going to be the same in sport. And we can talk about really, um, you know, sports that seem to be more repeatable. They are more simplistic in that way. There's less complexity, less interacting component parts. We could talk about sports that seem to have repeatability that we're going to try to, to chase. And yet, when we really look at it, what we find is that there's a lot more messiness than we're willing to acknowledge. That one's adaptability is still likely to be the calling card, the higher levels of skill and mastery that we go. So if we're talking about something, say, like running on a track in a 100-meter sprint, and you are alongside of seven other individuals, well, we can still analyze the performer-environment relationship and attempt to facilitate a more functional environment athlete relationship in an adaptable fashion through and because of these changing constraints, the weather, the track, the shoe. So if we bring your, if we bring your favorite pen back into the mix, for those off uh, that didn't see us off air, obviously beforehand, Rob handed uh, or showed me in his hand the bucket of pens that he has. And there was two dozen pens in there, but he was a little frazzled looking for his favorite red pen. That's a lot like the athletes who maybe have grasped this neatness this perfect technical model, like I gotta be my best. Well, how often when it comes to performance and us interacting with this alive environment, are we truly ever gonna be our best? Like one of the things that I find is that what we want to chase is dexterity as I've already mentioned. Well, if for those of you who maybe are hearing this idea of dexterity for the first time, it's from Nikolai Bernstein back in the 60s. And dexterity was just the ability to find or organize a movement solution for any emerging movement problem under any situation and in any condition. And so now all of a sudden, if we frame movement skill in this way, we must chase the expression of this dexterity. But in order to do it, think about that definition, right? In any situation, 
under any condition in any emerging movement problem. That's where dexterity or movement skill, the highest levels of movement skill should live and breathe, right? And so that means our practice environment or the activities that take place there has to have to be more emergent and they have to be across situations and across conditions. But as we do that, Rob, much to your point, what immediately happens? Complexity or the numerous interacting component parts starts to shoot up. Uncertainty, unpredictability, chaos potentially, messiness. When we first got on the line, I said, hey, let's be willing to kind of fall off the bike here alongside of one another. And if we fall off the bike, it's going to represent a learning opportunity for both of us. I think we should present more of these falling off the bike moments for our athletes, because I feel as though adaptability will emerge, pun intended, out of that. My, my take on that and how I'm, I try to put my, my, myself in the head of the listener. And maybe this is just how I think and the listener is going, Rob, no, no one thinks like that. But I've got this, this drill where everyone's in the same. It's nice and controlled. We've got a technical model that we're working to and we're progressing to that, to that point. Versus what I've got in my head for what you've just described is me thinking or, or me setting something up to, to, to create what you've described and then me perceiving that as I'm just out of control. Like what is going on? Don't know what I'm looking at. There's just too much going on. I need to then rein it back in. So I've got a bit more control. I think that is that that bit in between, and that's maybe just experience. That's maybe just a frame of, of thought and education in this area. I'm not quite sure. But would you say that people struggle with that traditional nutritional approach? I just think it's an approach maybe that I've taken or other people have taken. And this is and the new approach, what you're describing, that middle bit in between, that that big jump, that big chasm that we, we need to cross is the, the struggle. I, I think you're again hundred percent right. You're preaching to the choir right now. Because as I found my way towards an ecological approach, realized that for the first, uh, let's call it five to six years of me working with National Football League players, I was the traditionally minded individual that you were speaking to. I was chasing a rote repetition, perfect technical model of almost any movement action or technique that the athlete could organize or coordinate. And when I finally, and this was at the end of the 2012 season, which is sort of my, one of my Robert Frost moments where there were the two roads diverged in the trail. I remember asking myself the question really poignantly as I looked myself in the mirror at the end of the season, are the players performing on field because of the work we do or in spite of the work we do? And I didn't like the answer to that question. I very rarely saw them actually behaving with this perfect technical model that we had beaten the path towards in that traditional approach, in that rote repetition over and over and over again. If an athlete couldn't behave in that way, I felt as though they just needed more repetitions or they needed more instruction or more feedback, more constancy, more consistency from me and how they were moving. And, but yet when I'd watched them in the practice and training environment, they were nice, neat, cute, clean, sexy, you know, and I would put those athletes up against any other athletes uh, of any other trainer, but then they'd get out on the field. I'm like, 
where in the hell did all those patterns go? Like, where are those techniques that we beat this path in? And what I realized there, I was neglecting decision-making. I was neglecting perceptual information pickup and detection. And I was really separ separating and segregating those processes of the human movement system perceptions, cognitions, and actions. And now I view them as being more intertwined and interwoven with one another. They're a holistic movement problem-solving process. Remember back to the definition I gave you of dexterity from Bernstein. Bernstein also said that dexterity doesn't live in the movements or actions themselves, but it lives in its interaction with the environment. So think about this. If it's about those movements and how they interact with the environment, that, inner, that environment has to present some unpredictability. It has to present some aliveness, right? And so now this major dilemma that most strength and conditioning professionals come to, the one that you poignantly pointed out, which is, I need to have more control than that. that we can't have this messiness. If that athlete falls, slips, um, maybe can't find themselves in the most optimal of biomechanics. No, well, then it's my ass, isn't it? Right? Like that's how they view it. And I get it like, because I did chase that perfection. But what I realized is I was actually doing the athlete more harm than good. When, when I did that, like I was treating them with kid gloves, like, Oh, we're going to, we're going to ramp everything down. And somewhere there along the way, they became lesser equipped to prepare to play on an NFL Sunday. Like they were less prepared to adapt when the environment was going to ask them that of them 50, 60, 70 times a game over, you know, in an NFL Sunday. And so when I shifted my paradigm a bit to view the aliveness of the environment, I started to realize like, wait, I can still manipulate constraints and I can just scale the information. So it's a little less. So it isn't this complete free-for-all. A lot of times people hear of this idea of self-organization that those with an ecological dynamics rationale might purport as, as something that we chase, which I do, right? Well, self-organization isn't just, it's not a free-for-all. We don't just let it go. It's not like I don't explicitly ever suggest or attempt to facilitate changes to behavior for the athlete, right? But I let them try to figure some shit out on their own at times too right? Because for me, I need them to become more adaptable and more tuned and more intentional problem solvers with their movement. And if that's the case, I know that they're probably going to have to be some messiness. But if I can scale that information, so that information brings that athlete to its challenge point. And when I say information, I'm speaking to the information about the problem or the landscape of the environment not information that I would explicitly give someone and try to put within their brain, right? Maybe how I would have viewed it in the past. I'm talking about this information that is existing out there that specifies these opportunities that channels one's movement behavior. I can scale that down and scale that back. That's the thing with the individual drills that I mentioned before at NFL practices. A lot of times position coaches will say, well, we're just trying to get things warmed up or we're just trying to um, repeat this in this way to get them adequately prepared. So when we throw them into the messiness, but they have that same viewpoint that many strength and conditioning professionals have that you, you've talked about, right? Like they want to view themselves as being in control. 
I can dictate how that player is going to move. But if we just shift our hat from being dictator to a little bit more facilitator, where we don't have all the answers, where we can set an environment, we can manipulate some constraints. So it does meet the athlete at their challenge point, which is an art in and of itself. I'm not sugarcoating that, right? Because otherwise, I'm, like I just said, I don't want to just throw that athlete through the through the ringer, right? And throw them to the wolves by just placing them in the game. That's not what I'm suggesting. But what I am suggesting is that we attempt to manipulate constraints, constraints of everything from the organism to the environment to the task, right? So if we think about that from a strength and conditioning standpoint, let's use your pen as an example again, right? Two years ago within our learning environment, I always have a theme, a theme that is threaded throughout my NFL offseason. This year, it's about developing skilled intentionality, right? One's aims to act in a given way. But a number of years ago, we coined this idea of adaptability within adaptability. So we could never become too adaptable. Like I was trying to test their adaptability in every way, shape or form. Think of the comfort and control we often have, like our red pen, right? The athletes chase their red pen. They chase their favorite cleat. They want to warm up in the same spot. The coaches themselves are doing the same thing. Like where the hell's my stopwatch? I got to have my stopwatch. I got to have my whistle. The whistle becomes like your pen. I got to have everything written down. And somewhere along the way there, we constrain the athlete's adaptability because we've hyper constrained our own behaviors. And so two years ago or three years ago, it might be now, we chase this idea of adaptability within adaptability. I started shaking things up within my learning environment. It's something that we could easily do across the profession, changing athletes footwear day to day, or maybe even set to set activity to activity. And, and now people might be thinking, well, that seems like a little ridiculous. Like we're going to go to the point where we're changing their footwear, but that connection between an organism and their environment changes the information that then is being specified to them about how they can move, when they can move, where they can move, et cetera, right? Changing locations, surfaces, no two surfaces or no two days in a row did we ever train on the same surface. One day we'd be on field turf, the next day we'd be on grass, the next day we'd go on a grass that was cut completely different, uh, maybe had a little bit of, um, you know, chaos to it, maybe that it had some spots in the pitch or field which weren't the best. Like I wanted the athlete to be able to adapt through those things because that was going to happen on an NFL Sunday, right? We changed the time of day that we were training. We changed who was watching. Like things like this change the behavior and the behavioral organization that we get from the athlete. And those things are small changes that we could make that just make the athlete a little bit more uh, perturbed, if you will. And they have to work through those challenges. It may seem like surface level, but it got to the point where the athletes that I was partnering with, like they thrived under the need to adapt. Like, you know, they just got to the point where we were having their opponent select the shoe they were going to wear. That would be like me saying, no, Rob, you're going to use a purple pen today instead of a red one, you know, and you'd be like, oh, no, I got to be comfortable here. But think about how we just allow the athletes to be comfortable too often. And what are we actually detracting from them when they get out into the competitive performance environment? Again, I think we might be doing more harm than good there. 
Just going to take a very quick break in this chat with Sean. Hope you enjoyed part one. So part two follows a similar theme, talking about transfer, how we create drills to ensure that we get transfer from the training field, from the practice field, onto game day, into game day. So really interesting part two, again, coming up with Sean. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kitman Labs. Kitman Labs is sport's first technology company to offer a complete solution that includes innovative analytics and an advanced athlete management platform that is supported by a team of sports, technology and data science experts with over 200 years experience. Kitman Labs is leading the evolution of sports performance, partnering with over 150 elite teams across the NFL, NHL, MLB, AFL, EPL and Championship Rugby. Through advanced statistical analysis, rigorous scientific research and unparalleled industry experience, they've architected the world's only analytics platform that helps sports teams to truly harness their data and uncover the influences behind performance optimization and injury risk. To find out more about Kitman Labs, visit kitmanlabs.com or follow them on social media at Kitman Labs. And also sponsoring this episode is Samsung Equipment. Samsung Equipment has been manufacturing elite strength equipment since 1976. Based in New Mexico, Samsung provides professional weight room solutions for those looking to lead the way in advancing our strength and conditioning profession. Being a direct manufacturer, the team at Samsung brings fully customization capabilities in not only branding, but in custom equipment needed to execute your programming. The Samsung team brings many years of experience not only in coaching, but in manufacturing high quality strength equipment. So there is no vision too great. If you can dream it, they can build it. Find them on social media at Samsung underscore EQ. And for more information, visit their website samsungequipment.com or email andy at andy at samsungequipment.com. And now back to the episode with Sean. So you've talked a lot about the environment. I think now would be a great time to throw a little example in there and just see how you would change things. So using that um, individual drill base, cl- closed close drill that you mentioned that you, you seen sometimes online or a lot online. So ch- change direction, for example, running between two cones and checking right and left, getting the perfect body position for... To, to optimize the performance, but get them in a position where they're not in risk of potential injury, et cetera, et cetera. So we've done that very closed drill. They're going left, they're going right. So that's the kind of one end of the spectrum. How would we make our way as a coach more towards the end of the spectrum that you're talking about? I love the question because hmm. now we're really going to see some practical relevance here, or hopefully some practical application. The first question or the first filter I would put this through is how can we immediately inject more aliveness into the problem, right? If we're viewing sport movement behavior as a problem solving activity, how can we actually turn this into a problem that has dimensional levels to it? And how can we require more from the behavioral organization of the movement system with perceptions in cognitions or intentions and decisions that need to be made, right? So the first thing I do in my world or in my environment, cones are usually just boundaries, 
Okay. If a cone is in an activity, it's probably not my workspace. Okay. <laughs> so, um, the, even the only thing worse than that, the only thing worse than a cone is an agility ladder, <laughs> but I digress. Um, so we would remove those cones, especially because usually when we see that happening, Rob, particularly the videos that I've been sending out over the last week, week and a half here of NFL practices, what do we see behind the athlete who's going and rehearsing that technical model? We see a line of athletes waiting to go. We see coaches who are yelling from the side, right? Good, good, good. Go faster. Do this, do that here. No, not this, right? They're inundating them with information where the athlete doesn't get a chance to connect to their own information about how that environment might be changing because the environment in and of itself isn't changing, right? The problem isn't changing. And that's the thing. Like if we can get there to be a mutual reciprocal exchange of information between an alive problem, it doesn't have to be overly chaotic or overly complex. Just have likely some moving bodies within it or athletes within it that, an, you know, that the athlete who's going has to become sensitive or attuned to because those moving bodies in the space they afford, their bearing angles, their speed, their kinematics and their posture will all dictate the behavior of the athlete who's going through the drill. Okay. And so like the drill word is one that never gets used in my environment. In fact, if a player utters it, like the rest of the players in the group are like, basically throwing him, you know, throwing water on him. Like, no, no, the drill, the dreaded D word is not used here. We want a live learning activities. And so just to go across that spectrum, just a little bit, remove the cones and add some aliveness, put bodies there, bodies that may change behaviors ever so slightly. JJ Gibson, sort of one of the fathers of ecological psychology, coined this idea that behavior affords behavior. What does that mean? How one person acts in the world will offer us opportunities for how we may be able to act, right? And the organization of our movement behavior is dependent on our connection to that other individual's behaviors. So again, we don't need a ton of messiness, but we likely need either an opponent and or a teammate in the space, right? We might be getting attuned or sensitive to the posture and kinematics of the immediate opponent that is coming to us, telling us where we can cut, when we can cut, how we have to adjust and change our cut to be in relation to the opponent, right? Maybe it's a teammate and we're becoming sensitive and attuned to their back as they come into the space to block another opponent, right? So things like interpersonal distance to that individual, us being able to perceive and read and recognize how they may be attempting to move is going to be highly factoring into the channeling of our own movement behavior, right? One, the, I mentioned mixed martial arts earlier, right? And one of the things that I often find really fascinating there is that these individuals are accustomed to having adaptability and attunement within their practice activities, right? Now, we still see some pretty crappy stuff where they're just hitting the bag and doing things in an isolated fashion. But what, when it comes to a fighter who has a highly sophisticated type of style, an Anderson Silva, an Israel Adesanya, 
Like we see them highly sensitive to interpersonal distances. We see them highly sensitive to um, fainting and faking in aspects of their decision-making that are going to shape their intentions or their ways that they could potentially act. We see them often like with eyes wide open, picking up information sources about the nuances of their opponent. But then in most sports that are happening on a field, we don't see that quite as much unless we see it naturally emerge, say in like a Barry Sanders type of fashion, right? Where all of a sudden the problem was so chaotic for him. He thought to himself, like, it's them or me. Like, I got to perfect the art of making this guy miss right here, right now. Otherwise that guy's taking my head off. I'm 200 pounds. He's 260. Like that's, those are some constraints that are channeling the behavior. Right. But my, I understand that I'm kind of going around and around in a circle here, but I'm trying to paint a picture for people out there that these are the realities of movement behavior in the competitive environment. How do we inject more aliveness within any activity? So it looks, feels, acts, and behaves more like sport. Notice I didn't say it has to be identical. The most representative problem for me and, and the players I partner with is an 11 v 11, but we don't often exist there because they can't always handle that information, that amount of information from that complexity. We might have to scale it down to 1v1, 1v2, 2v2, 3v3, more small-sided game-like activities that we could all easily do if we just inject some aliveness. And then what we find there, Rob, is, again, we use Bernstein's idea of repetition without repetition. What, what does that mean? Essentially, a variability within the problem, there's aliveness, and variability within this integrated movement solution, meaning how perceptions, cognitions, and actions are going to be intertwined and interwoven together to form this behavioral organization that we see. We see that the athlete is then given the opportunity to explore and search their toolbox a bit. You know, like what I would have loved to seen from you when you couldn't find the red pen is shake out all the pens, close your eyes and grab one. That's the one you're using. That can be nervous you know just I mean? thinking about that, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there's probably some people that are listening who maybe exist within one of those similar realms that would be almost sweating bullets for you. Right. And so like, we think a lot about soft assembly, softly assembling the practice activities we're going to use, right? As opposed to being a dictator. We're thinking about what we're hoping to channel within the movement problem-solving process. But on that given day, we might find other opportunities where we can aim to educate the athlete's attention or perceptions. We can aim to educate their intentions and how they may aim to interact with that problem. And we just give them more exposure, more experience. And usually what comes up out of that, Rob, is number one, abundance. Or in an ecological dynamics term, we call it degeneracy, which I don't really like that word because my mom used to call me a degenerate for many other reasons. <laughs> um, and some people out there might be calling me that right now too. But I think about abundance, just having more potential strategies and solutions to solve similar behaving problems. And once we can chase abundance of strategies, we find that there isn't one way that they have to behave. And if they don't have just one way that they have to behave when they're presented with a problem, they're more likely to find themselves in an adaptable or dexterous state, the expression of dexterity, right? So we got to have an abundance of strategies or solutions that are potential for us 
because we don't know what that problem is going to offer us. Like we might think we know, but again, the reality is no two problems are ever the same and context of that problem shapes the content that is that movement solution, right? And so if we're going to try to dictate as to how that player will move, but we don't know anything about the problem, like that shows a tremendous disrespect of the complexity of the sporting world, right? It, it, like for us to think we know the way that someone needs to move when we don't know what it is that the environment is going to be asking of them in order when to move, how to move, where to move, et cetera, right? So hopefully I've taken some, some ideas and shooken them up a bit and then spread them out throughout the table. There's probably a lot of different directions we could go from here. I hate to ask, but because I close drills, similar time, NFL, probably any sport, we can, we could, you could use the example there. Is there ever any place, like you mentioned, oh, we're just getting them warmed up to then drill down and then we're going to chuck them in. But is there any place for that at all? If you adopt an ecological dynamics framework where our, our relevant scope or scale of analysis is on the performer environment relationship and that athlete, particularly in a team-based sport such as American football, isn't going to have to coordinate, control, and organize their movement behavior, not related to an opponent or in an, an alive environment, then I don't believe that there's very much need at all. Now, it doesn't mean that you couldn't do it if you were maybe trying to get them to open up their action capabilities, right? You, if anybody watches from afar, they were to hear this idea from J.J. Gibson that says, we perceive to act and we act to perceive. So the two are always intertwined and interwoven with one another. Well, in a more contemporary ecological approach, we've thrown cognitions, intentions, and decision-making into this mix too, right? But they are all always interdependent with one another. So what we perceive in the world is going to channel how we have the opportunity to act. But in order to act in that given fashion, we must have the action capabilities to be able to act upon it, right? I threw a lot of acts and actions in there. But all that's saying is I have to have access to that strategy within my movement toolbox, if you will. Like if, if this situation calls for me to execute a crossover cut, but I have tremendous um, knee tendonitis and I can't cross over on that, I may have to scale the information down to such a level that that athlete can explore it. So I might have to put that opponent that they would execute that cut in relation to as a stationary one. Okay. So it would reduce its aliveness. It would reduce its complexity. The opponent isn't moving. So the athlete can then run to that point. But what do we see that coaches do instead of that? They put a cone there. And then what changes in that behavioral organization for that athlete? That athlete can get as close to that cone as humanly possible. And oftentimes they're supposed to, right? But yet if that's a human and that human can reach out and touch you, you don't have very fine sensitive control in relation to what it is that you'll have to do when you'll have to do it. A cone is this big and a cone never tackled anybody and a cone never made anybody juke um, or anything like that, right? And a human is obviously much, much bigger, specifically if we're talking about an American football field. So even just putting a human there changes the behavioral organization. It changes what an athlete has to perceive 
right? They're likely not to be looking down at the ground anymore for that cone. They're going to be looking at things like um, posture and kinematics of the opponent. We could have that opponent just take small steps forward and back. So you can see we're just ramping up the complexity or the intensity. And as we ramp up the complexity or intensity, we, wrap up, we, we ramp up the information that is maybe channeling the movement. That is maybe one has to have their movement coupled too. We're still having some ownership and autonomy and authenticity. Uh, a month or two ago, leading up to the Israel Adesanya fight, I'm a huge Israel Adesanya fan because I think he might actually be the most dexterous athlete across sports for a number of reasons. I, I put together a, um, an hour, hour and 10 minute uh, video where I broke down Israel Adesanya and how he does what he does. But I was on a podcast and, and they talked about um, Izzy still doing pad work. But watch when Izzy does that pad work, what he's doing. Eugene Behrman, the coach of City Kickboxing in New Zealand, is giving Izzy an opportunity to still perceive, intend, and act in a constantly, tightly cyclical fashion. What do I mean by that? You'll see Izzy doing like this, like this fainting and faking. Like it's just Eugene Behrman's hands that, that Izzy's going to throw a one-two at or, you know, do any number of combinations in relation to, but notice who's given the ownership and autonomy in that activity. Eugene Behrman isn't telling them, you must do it this way. You must do this action. Izzy is really naturally emergent. He's still behaving in a fashion that is going to be indicative of that, which what he will behave like when there is a true alive opponent in front of him, right? And so I think if we can inject even that amount of aliveness, Rob, there might be a place for more closed activities, but not in the traditional sense where we're telling somebody exactly how to move, exactly where to move, when to move, et cetera. That's, I think, is the danger. Or then something that was mentioned earlier, where we're chasing the same model for every athlete. Like, talk about us being able to think as though we have all the answers. Like, movement behavior in sport is a lot more complex than that than us having this answer. And if you were to put numerous people in a room together, analyzing those movement actions, and you were to see the top 10, let's say running backs in the National Football League, and they were presented with similar behaving movement problems, guess what? No two movement solutions are going to be the same, right? They both could functionally solve the problem, a linebacker in the hole. They both would make that guy miss, or all 10 of them, or 32 of them, if we're talking about all the 32 starting players in the league at that position. They will all make that same guy miss, or that same linebacker in a similar place miss, but in their own authentic and unique way. And it's there that I believe, you know, again, I mentioned, hate to give Stu too many call-outs here, <laughs> too many mentions, but Stu talks about coaching to the athlete's model, right? And I love that. As long as we're thinking about that model being a multi-dimensional one, what they're perceiving, how they're perceiving, what they're intending to do, what they could intend to do, or how they could aim to interact, and ultimately how they would adjust their strategies and solutions from an action standpoint as well. And, uh, you know, I brought up Barry Sanders earlier, years back, I worked with Adrian Peterson, who was obviously the, um, you know, one of the best running backs, that, at least of this generation, if not top five ish 
in the history of the National Football League. And I remember having very deep conversations with Adrian early on, where we were talking about the players that he was aspiring to become like. Barry Sanders being one, Walter Payton, Jim Brown, these types of individuals, LaDainian Tomlinson, Marshall Falk, right? What at the end, I first, I entertained these conversations because I used to view things in a technical perfect model, right? So when he and I first started talking, I entertained it. And I, we started like looking and investigating and studying how these guys were solving those problems. And then once I started to adopt an ecological dynamics framework, it, it made me realize like, wait a minute, with Adrian, we were chasing the wrong model. How do I get Adrian to put his own stamp upon the game in his own unique way? The guy is 6'1", 218 pounds. Barry Sanders is 5'8", and 200 pounds, right? Even from an organismic constraint standpoint, they are very different humans. And that's not even talking about how they perceive the world, their experiences, the things they've been exposed to, their physical characteristics and qualities. Like Adrian can go in a straight line and hit a gas pedal that, you know, I've never seen before. That wasn't Barry's game. Barry was going to make you miss and leave your jock laying there, you know? <laughs> so it's like they have different styles. That's their model that we should chase. But the two guys play the same position and are going to be presented or offered with similar opportunities or at least similar behaving or unfolding problems just going back to the example that i mentioned about the the change direction the different different cuts one thing that would appeal to people in that first the other end of the spectrum to what you're talking about is a linear progression okay we go this that's successful okay let's move on to this then that's successful move on to this making more complex getting more intensity there whatever it may be on this side of what we're talking about the other end of the spectrum that linear progression is not so obvious because there's a lot more going on there how would you advise people to try to make sense of that to allow them to feel not more comfortable i hate to use the word given that my red pen's been brought up a couple of times which is absolutely fine but make them more confident in that world yeah that's a really 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 good question that has practical relevance again First, we have to acknowledge that, at least from an ecological dynamics rationale, and when we look at complex dynamical systems, is behavior in the interactions that lead to, to that behavior is nonlinear, right? So small changes to the ways that something unfolds from a context standpoint could lead to potentially huge changes in the behavior which emerges potentially number one, right? We also have to realize the nonlinearity that humans go like this on a day-to-day -day fashion, right? So we're probably not, you know, the old, um, I only have heard Bruce Lee quote it, but I know that somebody else originally said it, but we never stand in the same river twice, right? For we're not the same human and the river isn't the same either, right? So we start to respect the nonlinearity, number one. Now, a lot of times people will say, well, Sean, that's a tremendous cop-out because Rob was asking you about how we might progress this. I like to think about it as we are constantly presenting different situations and or different conditions to the athlete to test the stability or flexibility of the movement solutions. That's a fancy way of saying that if we start to see movement behavior that is stickier, 
that it maybe is emerging on a more frequent basis. Maybe it's a wide basis support, um, lateral power cut, right? We're starting to see that emerge. Well, I want to test its flexibility within an adjustability, if you will, to be able to match or emerge in different problems, right? So I'm going to change positions of opponents. I'm going to change speeds of opponents. I'm going to change space and workspace to operate in. And all while I do that, we're basically perturbing the system to see what else may emerge, right? We might see that that wide base of support, low center of gravity, lateral power cut starts to turn into a narrower base of support with a higher center of gravity because it relates to a more functional movement solution as opponents change their positions. And that is not only okay, it's exactly what we should be chasing, right? Because we're allowing it to become more adaptable. But, you know, something that you said there, as far as how do we get it to, how do we chase it to begin with? Usually what, what I do with athletes that are new to me um, is I, I get them to be much more comfortable being uncomfortable. And I know that people say that all the time, right? So I actually try to inject more nonlinearity and more complexity of the, the problems right off the bat. So what we'll do is we're going to give them some safety by maybe putting them in a, a circle. Maybe it's um, the, the middle circle, the, the soccer pitch circle that exists in the middle uh, on an American football field. It's sometimes there. Usually it's a logo in our world, right? Yeah. <laughs> there, there's a logo and I will put five, six, eight players around that. And I'll say, you're going to go in to the circle. You're all going to enter it and you're going to execute any number of movement strategies. You're going to explore and search and see what's in your toolbox. You're going to attempt to change direction and, and make evasive actions. At times, you can hit the gas pedal. You can accelerate. You can decelerate. You can change direction. You can play with the manipulation of the spacing of the other people within the space. You're going to attempt to look deeper. And then I'll have all six or eight individuals enter that space at one time. And they're all cutting in relation to one another. Now, a lot of times, Rob, like I had a number of NFL coaches come out and watch that and they're like, whoa, what is all this messiness? Like these guys are going to run into each other. Here's the thing. Within that, I've never had, now I knock on wood, but I've never had athletes run into each other. Why do you think that is? Well, it's a very safe place in space to essentially go test out what strategies you have. How do I execute them? You're very intentional about, well, today I want to explore a wide base of support, low center of gravity, sharp lateral power cut. Maybe you start to see like, wait a minute, I have to become sensitive and attuned to different moving bodies in the space. And that becomes more specifying to you as to what presents opportunities. Maybe athletes are, are going to play that day with their gas pedal and their brake pedal. So now that acceleration and deceleration has more context dependency to it. Like, wait a minute, I, I'm right next to the circle. There's another guy right here. I'm still trying to accelerate through that gap, but that guy's converging upon that, that space and that gap. So these opportunities, these experiences just start to build up and it's done in a pretty unrepresentative way there. 
the only thing that happens is a lot of aliveness and a lot of nonlinearity. But my point with bringing that up is saying like, that's actually where I begin in some cases, like to allow players to see like, I have, and, and this could be for NFL players, of course. So I know that I'm going to get the finger pointed at me and say, well, those guys already are at one of 1,696 players across the league. Cool. I get that. Okay. But if you saw the way that some of them move and how uncomfortably they, they, how uncomfortable they are when they get to me, you wouldn't think that they are elite athletes from a movement skill standpoint. Like they're just not used to behaving in that way. Right. But once we get them to come out of their shell, we shake things up a little bit for them and get them very comfortable in the autonomy and reorganization of those degrees of freedom what they're perceiving, how they're intending to move, how they could potentially act. All of a sudden they can start to put it to use in more representative problems. And it's there where we can have more linearity. We can have more progression. So I mentioned earlier about having um, the two players that might be converging and they're gonna explore a way of cutting, right? We can take it. And if we wanna go step-by-step-by-step by step by step in a more linear fashion, where first the opponent isn't moving at all. They are stationary at the spot and you have a workspace size that is maybe five yards wide and 10 yards deep. And the athlete's only intention is to execute a cut in that space in relation to the opponent, right? And let's say, because they're you, the player is used to cutting at a cone, they run up to the opponent and they get, you know, yay close to each other, right? Uh, of 12 inches, 18 inches, whatever it may be. Well, that athlete is close enough to reach out and touch you, okay? So all of a sudden you have to test the behaviors with some perturbations. Now that guy can reach out and touch you. And if he can touch you, your cut isn't executed functionally. So now that player has to become sensitive to what's my interpersonal distance to that immediate opponent. And that immediate opponent might not be moving yet, right? What's the gap to the right and the left of that opponent? And now, then at that point, once they become more sensitive and attuned to that, and notice I didn't say anything like you have to cut in this fashion, okay? I'm just trying to get them to become more sensitive to the information, knowing that that information is going to be that which channels and guides their movement. And you could do this with little kids. I've seen it done with little kids. And that which what emerges is closer to maybe that which what we would insinuate is more technically sound and optimal, because they're just solving problems in the world. They're externally focused on the conditions of something that's out there. That's why an ecological approach could actually be utilized across levels of mastery or skill in this way. You were harnessing their problem-solving capabilities. And so now once I get them attuned and sensitive to that interpersonal distance, guess what I have to do next? That opponent has to be moving. Maybe at first they're moving straight down that five by 10 yard pipe or tunnel right? And they are not having much speed or maybe unpredictability. But now that, uh, that athlete who's doing the drill or the learning activity has to become sensitive and attuned to not only interpersonal distance that's constantly changing, but speeds, speeds of the opponent. Guess what inherently happens there as well? Things like kinematics and posture, they start to realize like, wait a minute, if that guy's coming in and he's coming in at a rel relatively slower speed, his center of gravity might be a little higher. And so that might mean I can have a little bit of fainting and faking, a little bit more evasive juking type of action, right? And all the while, all I'm doing is 
essentially progressing the difficulty and the complexity, the uncertainty and aliveness of the problem. Once the athlete becomes attuned and sensitive to that, I could do any number of things. I could have the defender change the angle they're coming into. So now we're talking about interpersonal distance. We're talking about posture and kinematics. We're talking about speed. We're talking about bearing angle. All of these things, this is still a 1v1 problem. Like most people will look at that and say, well, that's pretty simplistic. Like, yeah, I, I didn't tell the player exactly how to move, but I still have enough control. Like they're not scared shitless that somebody is going to hurt themselves, hopefully, right? And, and if, and what you do there is you get the athlete so comfortable in keeping their perceptions, their intentions, and their actions coupled and their overall movement behavior in relation to a changing problem. Not a ton of aliveness, but enough aliveness so they can become sensitive to, to key informational variables. How many points on my list that you didn't see do you think we've covered? Oh, your list that I didn't see. <laughs> so really, how functionally did I solve the emergent <laughs> problem with, with the emergent problem being unpredictable? I hope we got to 80%. We haven't touched on, well, we've, we have, but not in the, in the fashion that I would probably predicted, which is ah. unbelievable, which is great because I feel like I've been adaptable and I've gone off what the, how the discussion's gone. But with that in mind, I've kept you well over an hour now and I really appreciate your time. I know you've got things on this afternoon as well, but Sean, thank you very much. There's so much in there. And I think, just how you present things and even how you relate what you've been talking about to my scrambling for the red pen has made me think about not only movement problems, but problems just in life, I think, and being adaptable and adaptability. So I really appreciate all you've uh, you've delivered for the last hour. But anyone that wants, go on, go on are you going to talk? Uh, I was just going to say, I, I really love that point that you're making. And I would be remiss if I didn't actually bring this up. When you look at the world in this way, it's kind of like red pill, blue pill, matrix style, right? You start to realize that this isn't a view just of movement behavior. It's a worldview. It's a behavior, uh, we're, we're analyzing behavior in context and that context can be anywhere, right? It's the way we find our way through the world. What we're attempting to do is facilitate more functional and more dexterous problem solving. Yep. Whether it's in movement or whether it's in, life as a whole this information and energy exchange that happened here there was aliveness to it and hence the reason why when you said hey i'm going to send you some questions i'm like no 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 <laughs> i need to be a problem solver because i need to practice what i preach i need awesome. to allow this aliveness these this information and energy exchange that happened between you and i to be in and of itself the context that shaped the content so good so good but anyone that wants to learn more about you, the work you do, the, the business, the other people that you've got in, involved with you, where's the best, where's the best place, Sean? I know you've mentioned yeah. your Twitter handle already, but. Yeah, I'll mention my Twitter handle once again. It's at Movement Miyagi. So just like Karate Kid, Mr. Miyagi, uh, wax on, wax off, even though that's not exactly the way that I attempt to facilitate facilitate behavior. So at Movement Miyagi, you'll typically see me going on tangents and on my soapbox about closed activity, rote repetition, and agility ladders um, in any combination. Um, you can also find me at footballbeyondthestats.wordpress.com. During the National Football League season, I break down a play a week. I analyze a play a week and talk about how these 
ideas lived and breathed within exceptional plays on an NFL Sunday. So people can check that out if they're intrigued or interested at all. I do have other blog posts on there that kind of inform one about my form of life, how I view the world. And then on that note, um, like I said, I do co-own up and operate a business called Emergence. And that is at um, www.emergentmovement, but movement is spelled mvmt.com, emergentmovement.com. So we couldn't actually have Emergence because the ABC television show Emergence was coming out at the exact same time (laughs) that our business did. And they took took the URL from us. Um, So they somehow had a little bit more clout. Than, uh, than our tiny little uh, mom and pop shop. Um, oh, you've been, education company. Uh, you've been modest there, Sean. Um, so <laughs> people, people can check me out in any one and number of those places. Um, obviously, I'm very, very grateful for the opportunity to be on here and for you to be so willing to kind of adopt this ecological approach, at least for the course of this conversation and discussion in a very emergent way. Absolutely. No, it's been a pleasure. I'm going to let you go, but thank you again. It's been so good speaking to you. So good chatting face-to-face, obviously virtually, but um, yeah, have a good rest of the day. Really appreciate your time and look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you, my friend. Appreciate you. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for tuning in to episode 410 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Hope you enjoy this episode with Sean. Big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, I Measure You, Kitman Labs, Samsung Equipment and Play for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run its current for without these guys, so I really do appreciate all their support. Big thanks to Sean for being so open and honest and allowing me to have such a good time with the, uh, the hour and a bit that we had together on this episode. But finally, really appreciate all your support. Thank you for tuning in and look forward to chatting to you next time.